Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vaudley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Noah Phillips, the Dartmouth Class of 2000, and a commissioner on the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC for short. Before joining the FTC, Phillips served as chief counsel to U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas on the Senate Judiciary Committee. From 2011 to 2018, he advised Senator Cornyn on legal and policy matters including antitrust, constitutional law, consumer privacy, fraud, and intellectual property. Prior to his Senate service, Phillips worked as a litigator at Kerboff, Swain, and Moore in New York City and Steptoe and Johnson in Washington, D.C. Phillips began his career at an investment bank in New York and received a law degree from Stanford. Commissioner Phillips, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Ben, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So we'll get into your work at the FTC in a moment, but first, could you tell us about how your time at Dartmouth influenced your career trajectory? Sure. Uh, And let me begin with a standard caveat that people in my position have to give, which is what I'll say about my work, and I suppose also about myself, is just my view and not necessarily the views of the Federal Trade Commission or my fellow commissioners. Yeah, thank you. So when I went to Dartmouth, I studied government in particular, um, and it was one of the great, if not the greatest experience of my life. I learned a tremendous amount from really intellectual professors. I think the lessons that have been most important to me um, in my work today and really over the course of my life uh, are a number. First, the professors I worked with were, to a person, uh, thoughtful, Mm -hmm. they were careful, they cared about evidence, and they interacted with counter arguments to the priors that they held. Those are all qualities that I feel are sorely lacking in Washington today and at the FTC. Um, But they are values that I try to bring to my work day in and day out. So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, is the great liberal education that I was uh, privileged to receive at Dartmouth. Um, Teaching me how to think uh, was a really great thing for me. Um, and has allowed me to approach a lot of new subjects in my life. You mentioned that I did intellectual property work um, on the Hill. That was new to me. Uh, That was not a big part of my legal practice before. And now at the FTC, while I have some background in antitrust from many years ago, um, a lot of that is new. Um, A lot of consumer protection work is new. Um, Learning how to think, the liberal arts, Mm -hmm. are incredibly important, both with respect to the method figuring out how to figure out something new, but also with respect to the substance. A lot of the topics that we covered um, really bear on what we do today. And so whether it is economics or it is political science, um, working in the Senate, coming to the FTC at a time of historical change, um, and knowing about institutions and what has happened to institutions in times of change over the course of history has been terrifically important for me. That's incredible to hear, and I definitely agree with your assessment of our government professors being a government major myself. It's been a heck of a lot of fun. And so briefly, could you tell us about your role at the FTC and also what exactly the FTC does and how it relates to the U.S. governance as a whole? Sure. So the FTC is the oldest still standing of the independent agencies in the U.S. government. It's not the first. Uh, The first was the International Commerce Commission, Hmm. uh, Interstate Commerce Commission, forgive me, the ICC. Um, 
And what the independent agencies do generally is they have different jurisdictions. So some of them are sectoral regulators, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, the CFTC, the Federal Communications Commission, the FERC, which used to be the Federal Power Commission. And then there's us, the Federal Trade Commission. So when we were created um, in 1914, we were sort of an adjunct to the Department of Justice, which already had the ball since 1890 on the antitrust laws, on the Sherman Act. With the FTC Act, we got also the Clayton Act, which is another one of the sort of principal antitrust laws. And now the FTC and the DOJ would share jurisdiction over antitrust. Institutionally, they're different animals. I'll explain one important way in which they're different in a moment. Um, but there was overlapping ability uh, to go after bad acts um, as defined under our antitrust laws. Right. Eventually, the FTC would start doing what we now recognize as consumer protection work under the guise of antitrust enforcement. Um, and that was struck down by the Supreme Court. So in the New Deal, Congress passed an additional an amendment to the FTC Act and gave us consumer protection authority. That side of the house, the consumer protection side of the house, has expanded into lots of interesting areas. And I think today, if I had to pick one that is most politically relevant um, and policy relevant, it's privacy. Consumer data privacy is something that we do. Um, yeah. We're not the only agency in the government that does it, but we're the principal one that does it. Um, and that makes us, you know, to my mind, the most important privacy enforcer in the world. So what is my job? Another feature of almost all independent agencies, I can only think of one exception here, and it's a recent one, is that they're governed by more than one person. Hmm. Typically a commission structure like the FTC has, like that sort of alphabet soup of agencies I yeah. mentioned a moment ago, CFTC, SEC, FCC, and so forth. Um, and we are constituted in a bipartisan fashion. So today, uh, today we have four commissioners out of a total of five. Two are Democrats and two are Republicans. And our job, each of our jobs as commissioners is to evaluate proposals that come up from staff, proposals with respect to legal action, with respect to regulation, with respect to the adoption of policy, um, sometimes more mundane things like, you know, reports that Congress asks us to file or testimony that we're going to submit as a whole. Um, we evaluate those and we sort of vote on them and we articulate our views as we like uh, on those questions. Mm. One of the other features of independent agencies is that word independence. Um, there is a whole big constitutional law discussion to be had about uh, the validity of that structure. But right now in America, at least since the 1930s, uh, the courts have permitted these agencies to have protection, uh, the heads of these agencies, the commissioners, people like me, yeah. to be protected from being fired um, for policy disagreements with the president. So I can be fired for cause, you know, if I cheat, lie, or steal, but not for doing something that Joe Biden doesn't like. And so at an independent agency, we are to some extent considered separate from the executive branch. Our function is overwhelmingly executive, um, but we don't report up the chain. We don't participate in the same way in the interagency process like the Department of Justice might um, or the Department of Labor or, or what have you. Um, so those two features, uh, the independence of the commissioners from the presidency 
And the fact that there are a group of people who are making decisions as opposed to one distinguish most of the independent agencies and certainly distinguish the FTC. All right, thank you for that background. And I definitely want to get more into the governance of the FTC in a moment. But for now, let's focus a bit on policy. So policymakers on both the left and the right have become more vocal in their displeasure with big tech over the past few years. We had Madison Cawthorn here actually uh, this past Sunday, and he um, you know, more or less said something to that effect. Uh, so how would you encourage the FTC to approach this issue of regulation in the big tech sphere? You mentioned privacy as being a very important element of what the FTC does, and I'm sure that very much relates to this topic. Sure. Um, let me start with sort of Congress and the public at large. One of the things that I find deficient in the policy conversation around big tech is that there is a lot of agreement that we need to, quote, rein in big tech, end quote. There is some disagreement about what big tech actually captures. Does it capture Microsoft? Does it capture Twitter, which is nowhere near as large by market capitalization as the four companies colloquially talked about as big tech, that is, you know, Alphabet, which includes Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. Um, so there's agreement that we need to do something, but there seems to me far less agreement as to what precisely the problems are that people want to solve. Yeah. And there is a tendency too often, in my view, to say, we see a problem over here on the right, and on the left, I don't mean that politically, I just mean in a different place, we see a kind of thing we can do to the company, whether it's a solution to that problem or not. Hmm. So one thing that I say consistently in testimony when I'm in front of Congress is I say to the members, effectively, you need to decide which problems you want to solve. You need to find agreement about that. And then we need to have a conversation about what the proper solutions are to those problems. So if your problem is, as may have been for the congressmen, um, perceived censorship of conservatives, um, it's not clear to me that antitrust is the right way to go about dealing with it. Right. Or privacy. Antitrust solves competition problems. Privacy enforcement solves privacy problems. Um, how you regulate the moderation of speech at scale is a terrifically thorny problem, both from a policy perspective and a legal one, because we have the First Amendment in America. Um, and so for me, too much of the conversation is focused just at the abstract level at kind of stopping companies or even just hurting them and too little on what are the problems we want to solve. Yes. So what should we, the FTC, be doing? So I think when we do our best work, we do work informed by a sober assessment of public policy questions, informed by a careful review of data. And we have special data collection powers under the statute. Um, we can use those powers to answer questions uh, and where we see problems to remedy them. I hope that we do that work in a rigorous way. I hope we level with the public about what the costs and benefits of proposals that we make are um, and proceed from there. So this is as much a method point as it is a substance point. I do think we need to be vigorous in our review of mergers and acquisitions. I think that um, one of the changes you've seen in the FTC during my tenure has been uh, 
an increased inclination to intervene, and a recognition that the costs of not intervening um, may be greater than previously realized, and so a willingness to bring some borderline, borderline is the wrong word, a willingness to bring some difficult cases. On the other hand, that shift in error cost framework doesn't necessarily justify doing whatever or ignoring the law or the evidence. Um, and it's in those directions where I fear um, people may want to go. That's a great response. I was going to ask you if policymakers really have a coherent platform behind uh, mantras such as break up big tech. And I think that you've answered my question. So, so two things. I think there are policymakers who do, right? There are absolutely members of Congress who are sitting around and thinking about a particular problem, whether it's privacy or content moderation or antitrust, and they're focused on those issues. But too often the rhetoric and too many other members, I think, do jump around just in a way of, we don't like you for whatever reason, and we want to punish you. Now, if we don't like you because you're breaking the law, the law has remedies and we should punish you. Um, but if what you're doing isn't illegal, um, there I think I get a little bit more nervous. Yeah, understood. That's fascinating. And so pivoting a bit, I'm very interested in the challenge that the rise of China has presented to American policymakers. And I have a few questions in that vein. On a general level, should the FTC incorporate national security considerations into its decision-making framework? So the interplay over the decades between antitrust and national security um, is a really interesting history to review. If you read the decision of the district court in the AT&T breakup case, the judge goes through the back and forth between the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice over decades. Um, let me say two things. The first thing is that my view is that antitrust is about competition. And where we get into trying to address other factors, we raise a number of problems, but two that jump to mind are first, one of institutional competency. We're not national security experts. That's not what I do for a living. Mm. I'm interested in those questions intellectually, um, but that's not the expertise that we have in-house. And the second is I worry that taking into account non-competition factors may lead us to make decisions that aren't optimized for competition, right? We'll have to balance. So what if we have a national champion that's causing competition problems? Does the fact that they're a national champion inoculate them from the antitrust laws? I don't think the answer should be yes. What I will say though is the following. It's not clear to me it's in our national interest to go beyond the law just to get at American companies, even if they aren't popular. Um, let me add something, privacy, mergers, acquisitions, these areas, mergers and acquisitions, these areas of policy absolutely can implicate national security questions. But the right way to address the problem isn't to try to pour that into the vessel of antitrust or privacy or what have you. It's the other authorities that the U.S. government has. So for instance, when a merger is being evaluated, we look at its competitive impacts. But if it's a foreign investment in the United States that might raise competitive, excuse me, that might raise national security concerns, um, we have the CFIUS process, right? And that, uh, we were talking earlier about Congress and how it's looking at problems. Um, I'm not sure how many people are tracking the fact that Congress passed a pretty big revision to the CFIUS law just a few years ago on a bipartisan basis. Um, that doesn't get you a lot of headlines, um, but it's important work. 
about protecting America. So it's not that I don't think these things could raise national security issues, but to my mind, it's the national security agencies using national security authorities that are best equipped to deal with them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a lot of food for thought right there. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our time. And so I have one final question. You've led a very interesting career, obviously, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for undergraduates who are hoping to make an impact upon graduation. Oh, I have lots of advice. Um, you know, it's a tough question. <laughs> uh, study hard, work well when you leave, take your job seriously. But above, above all, and I was saying this to some undergraduates the other day, um, Dartmouth will open a lot of doors for its students and for its alumni, but there are going to be times where doors may not open so easily. And learning how to be a little scrappy, to push for what you want, to hustle, learn how to sell, uh, those are important skills that are not necessarily part of a liberal arts education, but that can be very beneficial um, to graduates in whatever field they pursue going forward. That's great advice. And that's all I have. That was a fascinating conversation. Commissioner Phillips, thank you so much for your time today. Ben, thanks for having me. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.